the world effectively changed forever in 1945 when the U.S. tested the first nuclear weapon in New Mexico. Of course, you all know that not terribly long after testing that nuclear weapon, we dropped two of them on Japan and brought World War II to an end. But things changed so dramatically just by the introduction of a nuclear technology into the world that it shaped international politics, is still shaping it. Um, for years to come, there was the Cold War after that. I mean, it, it brought about a complete change in almost everything um, that exists on Earth because of that one little bit of technology that came into existence. There was a journalist who uh, was very popular and was writing back in that day, um, a commentator named Walter Lippmann, and he, in an Atlantic, uh, the magazine The Atlantic, in an article in 1962, he described the change that came about because of the introduction of nuclear weapons into the world. Here's what he said. I actually think I have it on the screen there, so you can follow along. The age we are living in is radically new in human experience. During the past 15 years or so, there has occurred a profound revolution in human affairs, and we are the first generation that has lived under these new conditions. There has taken place a development in the art of war, and this is causing a revolutionary change in the foreign relations of all the nations of the nations of the world. The radical development is, of course, the production of nuclear weapons. You can see the language that he uses there, right? All the different phrases radically new human experience, a profound revolution, new conditions. Now that type of language, of course, can be applied to the nuclear age that we live in now, but there are other introductions of technology that have also brought about major, major changes, and we would describe those changes as a new era or a new age. I mean, there's no doubt about it that you've referred to the internet age uh, in, in your lifetime. Profound changes that have come to humanity because of some, some introduction of some new technology. Now, I bring all of this up because in John 13 through 17, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. We've established that as we've gone through these passages, but it's not just about him leaving and them being by themselves. When he's talking about his departure through his death and through his resurrection, that inaugurates an entirely new era. There is a profound and dramatic change that takes place because of his departure. I mean, it can legitimately be described as the biggest change in human history because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. One author put it like this, the dramatic shift that takes place. Jesus' entry into human history, his earthly life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead marks the climax of the biblical story. Jesus reveals the coming kingdom by his way of life, his words, and his actions. At the cross, he challenges and conquers evil itself. The new day of resurrection for all creation dawns when Jesus rises from the dead. Profound change, a revolutionary change, you could say, about what is going to take place in the coming chapters in the Gospel of John. And with this new era, this new age, this profound change that takes place, there's going to come significant benefits for his followers. 
For the people that are in this room with Jesus, everything is going to shift dramatically for them, and it's going to shift in a very, very good way. Benefits are going to come to these disciples because of their connection to him and because of this new era that they enter into. He's been talking about some of the changes that are going to take place in chapters 13 through 16, but now in the rest of chapter 16, what Dom read this morning, he's going to get into some very specific things that are going to be characteristic of this new era, this new age that they're entering into. And so in John 16, 4b, the end of of verse 4, all the way through the end of the chapter, you're going to see this, five benefits that disciples enjoy because of the new covenant age, this new era, this profound change for all human beings because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are five benefits that his disciples, and then of course, we by extension enjoy these benefits. They come to us through his work because of the new covenant age. And the first one of these is the Spirit's work in the world. This is a profound and dramatic shift that we enjoy the benefits of because the Spirit is working in the world around us, even if we don't always see it. Look at the second part of verse 4 there. No doubt in your Bible, as it does in mine, it probably starts a new paragraph. Here's what it says. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So, What things is he talking about here? Most likely, he's talking about the persecution that they're going to face that he's been discussing in chapters 15 and 16. They're going to face suffering and persecution and hatred from the world, and he's just described that. Jesus has been the lightning rod for all of that while he's been on earth. He's received the brunt of that, and now he's going to leave And they are going to become the center of that. They're going to be the ones that receive the persecution and the suffering. Now, though, since he's going away and he's made that portion of it clear to him, to them that he's going away, now he wants to begin to explain to them why it is that he's going away and what it's going to accomplish for them. Look at verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, if you've been with us and you read these words, if you've been with us in studying this portion of the gospel and you read these words, you're probably like, wait a minute. They have asked him where he's going. I mean, if you look back to chapter 13 and verse 36, listen to what Peter says. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? That seems to be the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. What's going on? Well, obviously, we know Jesus is not confused here. What he's saying in this verse is making an entirely different point than what Peter was asking about in chapter 13. And this point is clarified by verse 6. Look there. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The focus of the disciples has been so far on their loss of Jesus, right? They're feeling bad for themselves. Sorrows filled their heart because he's going away from them. He will no longer be with them physically and in purpose and and with them um, for his purposes. Now, though, 
he's going to focus their attention on the significance of why he's going to the Father. And that's what they've not considered yet. That's what they've not been thinking about yet. What are going to be the results of this? What's going to happen because he's going away? They haven't been thinking about what his going to the Father will accomplish, and that's what he's getting at here in verses 5 and 6. They're sorrowful that he's going away, but they're not recognizing the change that's going to take place yet. Look at verse 7. This is what he begins to explain to them. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, the point here of Jesus going away and only by him going away will the Spirit come to them, the point is not that Jesus and the Spirit can't exist in the same space, sort of like in Back to the Future, you can't have two Marty McFlies in the same time period, you know, at the same time, or else it disrupts the universe. That's not what he's talking about here. They can't exist. Some of you, that's completely over your head, and that's fine. That's completely fine. We should look it up. The point here is that unless Jesus dies, unless he does the work that the Father has for him, unless he dies and rises from the dead and ascends to the Father, the Spirit won't come because the new age will not have been inaugurated. The messianic age will not come unless Jesus does the work that he needs to do. The Spirit characterizes the messianic age. And so for the Spirit to come, Jesus has to do what he has to do, and then everything changes. The revolution has begun because the Spirit has come, and the kingdom of God is inaugurated on the, work, on the earth through Christ's work and through the coming of the Spirit. Now notice again the language in verse 7, and think about what he's telling them here. It is to their benefit that he goes away. That must have been shocking language for them to hear. It's to their advantage. Things will work out better for them. Why? I mean, they're losing their, their teacher, their rabbi, their friend, and they're going to lose him in a way that is going to be shocking to them. Why is this to their advantage? It's to their advantage because of this new era, because the Spirit is going to show up. Now, it's that idea that he says here. It is to your benefit, to your advantage. It's profitable for you. That drives the rest of this passage. The rest of chapter 16 is sort of under this heading of it is to your benefit and your advantage that this new era comes through the Spirit and through my work. Why? Well, let's look at our first benefit here. It's already on the screen, but it really begins in verse 8. And when he, the helper, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, Jesus has already talked about how he's going to send the disciples out into the world to bear witness about him. That's one of the reasons they're going to suffer persecution. But when he sends them out into the world to bear witness for him, the Spirit is going to do this massive work of bringing conviction to the world through them and through their preaching. What does the word conviction mean? What is the, at the heart of the work that the Spirit's going to do? The word conviction here means to expose something or to bring it to light. 
You can get the idea from this word of courtroom proceedings, and the Spirit is acting as the lawyer that is bringing all of the evidence out into the open, exposing everything to the light of day so that a judgment can be rendered based on that evidence. Verse 8 gives us some specific areas where this exposing work will happen. Look there again. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Three areas, and then he spells those areas out in verses 9 through 11. Look there with me. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What are we talking about here? Well, sin is the charge that is brought against the world. So if we're thinking about a courtroom proceeding happening, sin is the charge. Sin is the fundamental problem of humanity. And at its root, you can make the argument that ultimately sin is moral autonomy. It's that we want to think and we want to act as if we are independent of God. We want to make our own decisions. We want to decide what is right or what is wrong based on ourselves and not based on him and his standard and his words. That sin at its root and that sinful way of thinking and that moral autonomy then drives sinful actions. And the Spirit's role in the world is to expose that as a harmful way of living. Now, Righteousness is the second work of conviction that the Spirit does, and righteousness is the standard to which humans are held. So sin is what they've done wrong, and righteousness is, here's how you have come short. Here's the standard that you are being held to, and then judgment is the result that happens because of missing the mark there. Exposing the standard, exposing how you've come short, and then it brings about, the Spirit's work brings about the judgment that happens because righteousness is lacking. At the end of the day, apart from God, human beings cannot have a basis for morality. It doesn't work. It has been tried throughout human history. Philosophers have tried to figure out how to have a universal moral standard apart from God's authority, and it cannot happen. It does not work. The only thing that you can do apart from God is observe what is in the world, what's there. You cannot tell me or anyone else what ought to be there, what ought to have been done. You can't come up with a standard apart from God's authority because we're trying to work this out in our own moral autonomy and our own spiritual blindness. And so the Spirit, by God's grace, comes into the world and exposes this moral bankruptcy. It makes no sense to try to live life this way apart from God. And his work in the world of doing this conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment is a great blessing to us as Christ's followers. Our role is to speak the truth. We have this truth from God. Our role is to speak the truth. And the Spirit is the one who does his work in those around us. He's the one who drives home sin and righteousness and judgment. 
We just have to open our mouths. We just have to live in a way that reflects this and then speak the truth to others and he will do his work. And so one of the great benefits we have in this new era is the spirit is working in the world around us through the gospel, but he's also working in us, not just in the world around us. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So Jesus is going to explain later on through the Spirit. We'll get to this in a second, but the reality of what his death means. But they're not ready for that yet. They're not ready to hear and understand the full meaning of his death and his resurrection. They can't bear it. They can't carry that load at this point. But they will be able to understand that when will they be able to understand it? They'll be able to grasp it in the age of the Spirit. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Notice the name change here. He was the helper earlier in this passage, and now He's the Spirit of truth. Why? He's going to guide them into all truth. How does he do this work? How does he guide them into the truth? He's speaking and guiding them toward Jesus Christ, understanding his person and work because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not speaking on his own authority, but he's simply directing them back to God the Father and God the Son. Look at verses 14 and 15. He, the spirit of truth, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, when you see this promise here that he's going to guide you into all truth, I think this promise is primarily for the disciples who are sitting around the table here on the last night of Jesus's earthly life. I think they're the ones who this is intended for. So what does this mean for you and I? How does this apply to us? Well, here's the beautiful thing about what has happened, right? Jesus dies, rises, ascends to the Father. The Spirit comes. And what does the Spirit do in these men who are sitting here? He reminds them of what Jesus has taught. He guides them into all truth by opening up the purpose of his death and resurrection to them and helping them to understand it. He draws their attention to Christ and how he is the way, the truth, and the, and the life. And then when those disciples remember those things and learn those things and the meaning becomes clear, what do they do? They write it down. They write it down. They record it. Record what they learned, and then you and I have access to what they wrote down, don't we? 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is what? Breathed out by God through the Spirit as He led these disciples into the truth. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
If you want the truth and you want the Spirit to guide you into all truth, what do you do? You open this book. You open this book, you expose your heart and your mind to it, and the Spirit will work through these words that He inspired through these men, and they wrote down, and that will change you. And that's one of the great benefits of the era that we live in now. We can constantly expose ourselves to the Spirit's work through this book. It's precisely how He continues to work in us today. Third benefit indestructible joy, which I think is the title of our book of the month, a resource of the month this month. No connection really here. When you get to verse 16, after this promise of the Spirit's work in us, the conversation sort of takes an interesting and a bit of a confusing turn here. Lots of the same words and phrases are used over and over again in these verses. Look at verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the disciples are not super clear at this point on exactly what the the death of Christ and his going away is going to accomplish. And it's probably not getting any clearer here with this uh, little phrase that Jesus uses here. A little while, and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Verse 17. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus, verse 19, knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. What is going on here? What is Jesus talking about? I think the time frame that he's describing where they won't see him and then will see him is made clear in verse 20. Look there. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What is this talking about? Well, the sorrow and him going away for a little while and they won't see him is describing his death. And the world is going to rejoice at his death. We finally got rid of him. But there's going to be a dramatic change that is going to happen, which will bring the disciples joy. And it will happen relatively quickly. Maybe just a little while, you could say. And that event that will bring the disciples unbelievable joy is, of course, his resurrection. And so this is a a promise to the disciples that, yes, he will depart, but then he will show up again to them very, very quickly. And he gives them an illustration of this sorrow turned into joy in verse 21. Look there. When a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, of course, I think we all understand this transformation from sorrow to joy. Some much better than others, I would say. I am one of those that doesn't understand it nearly as well as my wife does. 
But we all understand what this is like when a child is born, the joy that comes from that, preceded by the sorrow that is and the pain and anguish that is experienced. But this isn't just a randomly chosen illustration. Jesus didn't just pick this out of thin air. There probably wasn't a pregnant woman in the room that he decided to use as an object lesson. He specifically chose this lesson here, this image and this picture, and he specifically chose the wording here of her hour coming for a reason. He's chosen this of a woman being pregnant and experiencing anguish and giving birth and experiencing joy because this is the exact image that is used over and over again in the Old Testament to describe Israel suffering in her sin. Over and over again, this happens. Listen to Isaiah 26, verses 16 through 18. O Lord, in distress they sought you, they poured out a whispered prayer when, you, when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we, Israel, because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. Their suffering didn't accomplish anything. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen." So what happens here is Israel's sin, their rebellion against God, their idolatry brings about their suffering at God's hand. Their judge, God's judgment is brought on them and they cannot bring about their own deliverance. That's what they're saying here. Verse 18 again. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. They cannot save themselves. They cannot rid themselves of their sin and their rebellion against him. But then notice the language of the next verse, verse 19. Oh, man, I didn't put it up there. Unbelievable. Shocking. All right. Well, I'll have to turn over there. Notice the language here in 26 and verse 19. Listen as I read it. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So the expectation here in Isaiah 26 is that through suffering, the dead will be raised and joy will come. So I think Jesus is not haphazard here. He's not random in picking this illustration. I think he uses this image here regarding his death to pick up on the Old Testament image of Israel suffering for their sins. And then he does this because he's saying, look, I am going to now suffer for your sins. What you couldn't accomplish, which was your deliverance and seeing new life come, I'm now going to do this. I'm going to suffer like a woman in her pregnancy and in her deliverance of the baby here. And then that suffering that I'm going to do for you is going to bring about deliverance and joy because the dead are going to come to life through me. And the result of that, as you see in Isaiah, and then as you see in John 16, is indestructible joy. Look at verse 22. 
So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Here's the benefit for us, right? Here's why this matters so much. For your life this week, the reality of Christ's resurrection enters us into a new era. Everything has changed for us when he walks out of the tomb. And because of that reality, because that is true and it is there, nothing can take our joy away because our joy is rooted in that reality. There are clearly times where life stinks. It's hard. It's not always fun. People are sinful. People are jerks. Bodies get old. Things break. They don't work as well as they used to. They slow down. Things get frustrating. It is a slow march toward the grave for each one of us. But you and I, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the social and people problems that we have, and our bodies breaking down, there's always a bedrock back there that you can fall on that cannot take your joy away. And it's this that there's a truth of resurrection life, that you are going to rise again physically, bodily from the dead and be with Christ for all of eternity. That is the backdrop, the backstop. It's the bottom line for you if you are in Christ this morning. This week, Bethany told me about a podcast that she listened to where uh, the couple that does the podcast was interviewing a woman. She's a believer who is blind. She lost her sight at about age 15. She's married and uh, is, I I think, a writer at this point in her life, Uh, but she's a believer. And as the couple was interviewing this woman, she said that obviously life's hard as someone who can't see. Just getting through the most basic daily tasks is a reminder of the difficulty of life for her. And she, she said in the interview that multiple times a day, she says to herself, Life is short, heaven is long. (laughs) Life is short, heaven is really, really long. And that's why there's indestructible joy here. Just raise your perspective up to that reality. And that's one of the benefits that is here because of the work of Christ and because of the coming of the Spirit and because of this new age that we have entered into. There's more, two more a new relationship with God. Notice the language in verse 23 at the beginning of this verse, in that day. Notice the language at the beginning of verse 26, in that day. This whole passage is filled with language pointing to this new era, this new age, in that day. Now in this text here, in verses 23 and 24, you'll see Jesus talking about a life of prayer. And this is something he's talked about before because this life of connected prayer to the Father through the Son is a defining benefit and feature of this new era for believers in Christ. Look at verses 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be 
full. Up until this point, the disciples have not asked the Father anything in Jesus' name because they've gone straight to Jesus. But now they're going to have this new relationship with the Father where they can approach him anytime, anywhere, with any request, and they can have direct access to him in the name of Jesus and according to his work. And now they will receive clear answers to their prayers. They won't get whatever they want, but there will be clear answers to their prayers given, and that will bring about joy. Their joy will be full because of this new relationship that they have with the Father. In addition to this new life of prayer that is a benefit of this new era, they also are now going to have greater clarity on God's love for them, and they're going to have a better understanding of who the Father is. Look at verses 25 to 28. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Let's just be clear here in verse 27 when he says, The Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. He's not saying that you've earned God's affection and love because you love Jesus. It's very clear in the Gospel of John and in 1 John that God is the one that has loved us first. That he so loved the world that he gave. God is the one who initiates. And love for Jesus is a result of God's love for us. And it works itself out and is seen very clearly, God's love for us, in this new age of the Spirit. Verse 28 simply summarizes what is going to bring about the age of the Spirit, the work of Jesus. Now, it's wonderful to hear about all of these benefits, these first four benefits, but they don't come to us because we're so good and we're so holy and we've got it all together. And that's the beautiful part about this last benefit in this last section, verses 29 to 33. All of these benefits come to us by God's grace and despite our ignorance and our sin. And you'll see that in this passage here. We're so quick to turn from the Lord. And yet, in his grace, we have this victory over the world because he has conquered the world. Look at verses 29 and 30. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. This seems pretty good on the surface of it. They think they have it, but they don't have it yet because they haven't actually entered into the new age. And so they're thinking that they're understanding everything and that It's all clear to them, but they're not really getting it yet. And Jesus makes this fact that they're not getting it clear in verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? He's like, I don't, you you don't quite have this. You're getting there, but you can't actually have this benefit and all that I've explained to you until we enter this new era. And in fact, 
To Jesus, it's really clear that they don't get it because they're going to continue to struggle. Look at verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Now, I hope you, I hope you can read this passage and you can, you can see yourself in the disciples here. Because I think that's where we should be. We should understand our shortcomings and that we would have done the same thing and we are oftentimes right there with them. We're scattered. We're all over the place. But Jesus tells them this here not to heap guilt on them, not to just expose them and cause shame. Why does he tell them this here? He tells them because now he's going to direct their hope and their confidence back to him, to where it really should be. Not in themselves, not that they have it figured out and that they get it now, but back to him. Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Two things to notice here. There's a promise of peace. We've talked about this. Messianic peace with this new age. But where do they access it? Through him, in him. That's the only place that they'll find it. And notice, too, that he has overcome the world. And let's talk about that a little bit here. Because we've, we've talked a lot over the last couple of weeks about the world. The language of overcoming the world means to win a victory. It's a, it's a word that means to conquer victoriously. So Jesus has already told them about tribulation, about persecution coming from the world. They're going to face that. But they can stand firm in the midst of that because he's going to win the ultimate victory over the prince of this world and over his evil system. He's going to conquer. That's what will happen. How is he going to conquer? Well, he doesn't specifically tell us here in this verse, but I want you to flip ahead to Revelation chapter 5. Same author, Apostle John, writing in Revelation chapter 5, the same word, the same Greek word, is used in this passage to describe Jesus' work. Same one by the same author. We'll start in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Most people think this scroll is the title deed to the earth. It's authority and power to rule and to reign. Verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, won the victory, conquered. That's the same word. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So how does he overcome? How does he conquer? Keep reading. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, and they understand how he conquered. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, the beauty of this, and we don't have time to get into this, is in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you have all of these letters to the churches. And at the end of every one of those letters, there are exhortations to overcome. Same word, to conquer, given to the churches. But the churches are not capable of conquering on their own. How do they conquer? Through him who won the victory for them. They're carried along in his victory, not in their own strength and power. So let me encourage you with this this morning. Some of us go day to day and forget these benefits. We sort of slide through life and stumble through life and forget these massive benefits that we have as we're connected to Christ because of this new age and this new era that we're in. So my encouragement to you this week would be go back and pull out your benefits package. Remind yourself of what you have been given, what has been won for you, and what you have received by the grace of God and through the work of Christ. And then let that reminder form you and shape you so that you live out of love and faith in this new era that we've entered into. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for the gifts of grace that we have received, that we have been given because of your work. I pray that you would encourage us with these things now. Help us to respond to them with thankfulness and joy and praise. May they form us and shape us into people who are holy, who love you, and who are faithful to witness in the world around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.